We sang that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, just a second ago, as you know. It was written in 1758 by a gentleman by the name of Robert Robinson. Some of his story, like so many from that period of time, is somewhat debated. But from the best we know, he lived his life, was faithful for most of his life, but somewhere toward the end of his life, he, it appears that he began to drift doctrinally and eventually quite possibly became a part of the Unitarian Church, which of course is universalist and believes that everybody's going to heaven. It is said that right before he died on June the 9th, 1790, he was on a stagecoach with a woman and as they were riding along, she began to hum and then to sing the song that he had written so many years before, Come thou found of every blessing. And as she began to sing that song, you can imagine it just pierced his heart. And finally he could not hold back and he said, Madam, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. <laughs> That's something. I just pray that if he did wander from the Lord, because remember he wrote in that one verse, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Could be that he was testifying of his own doubts, his own struggles. I hope that he got it together. Now, why did I tell you that story? Well, I tell you that story because I believe that every one of us is in a position where we're so facing the powers of evil. It has always been true. It was true in his day in the 1700s. Well, it's even more so now. As we approach the end, we are far closer to the end now than we were in Robert Robinson's time. If you look at the signs of the times, they're almost saying we are at the end. Now, whether we are or we aren't, most of us are going to get about 75 to 85 years on this planet, and then we're going to face our end, at least our earthly end. So whether the Lord comes back in my lifetime or not, friends, I'm racing toward my end. I need to be about my business with God. I need to be right with Him. We're all vulnerable to wander, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Today, if that might describe you, well, there is a, a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. <laughs> this month is Gay Pride Month. You can't miss it. Everybody has jumped on the bandwagon now. Coca-Cola, Google, Uber Eats, Visa, Walgreens, even Mickey Mouse. I mean, it's just everywhere. And when you see this, as a believer, my first impulse is just to kind of grip my teeth, right? And it's deplorable that they would take the only symbol that is given, us, given to us in Scripture of God's covenant promise to those who would follow him. You remember, God gave that sign to Noah. And he said, Noah, this is the sign of my covenant. I will not destroy the earth by water 
ever again. And it was to be a perpetual reminder. It is so deplorable that the perverted sexual lifestyle, that's what the Bible calls it, has embraced the rainbow as their symbol. It's almost like spitting in God's face. Well, we just need to remember that even though God did promise that on the left, the world would never be destroyed by a flood again, he has also promised that he will judge the wicked by a fire someday. Peter writes all about that. When the earth itself will be burned up and all the elements will melt with fervent, literally internal heat, God will release the atoms and it'll just be one massive explosion. So whenever you see this month, the, uh, the rainbow symbol, and you're prone to just want to grit your teeth, just remember, like old preacher R.G. Lee used to preach years ago in Memphis, Tennessee, there's a payday someday. Payday someday. Of course, we don't want people to be judged and be lost and go to hell. That's not what we're saying. But there's going to come a day when God's going to balance the books. There's going to come a day when those who have done wrong will face it, whether it's us or someone else. And this is one of the the things that the Bible says is the patience of the saints. It's our endurance that we know there's coming a day when God is going to set things right. All right, let's get into the message today. This is a sermon that is part two of a sermon that I preached two weeks ago. That sermon was entitled, Pass or Fail? Can Your Faith Stand the Test? Over the years, some have accused me of, of teaching salvation by works because they say, Dan, you're, just, you're harsh about judgment and about Christians living what they claim. Well, I'm only preaching the Bible. No, I don't believe in salvation by works. There's not enough good works any of us could do to get to heaven. We can't earn God's favor. I couldn't be good enough, pray enough, read enough Bible. It doesn't matter. I couldn't preach enough sermons. It doesn't matter. In fact, some of you say the more sermons you preach, the less likely you are to go to heaven. I, and I, I understand but, you know, I've never believed in salvation by works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 make it very, very clear that works have nothing to do with our salvation. It's all the grace of God. But verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says we're saved to do good works. We're called to do this. Now, I believe that across America today, our churches are filled, and I'm talking about Baptist churches, with people that think they're saved and they aren't. It is my great concern that if the rapture of the church happened right now, many of the so-called evangelical churches around the country would not see their crowd diminished by too much. Now, that really, that terrifies me. I'm no judge. I'm not God. I don't know people's hearts, but I know God's word. I don't know as well as I wish I did, but I know it enough to know that there are far more people who claim to be Christian than those who really are. And that's why those tests, those faith tests that I gave in the sermon a couple of weeks ago are so important and why you need to test yourself and then test family and and friends, not to be some self-proclaimed judge. Friends, we're talking about eternity here. And so I want to preach this message entitled, God Will Not Spare Them. God Will Not Spare Them. Let's begin with the word spare. The word spare shows up some 42 times in Scripture, and almost all of the times that it appears, it's talking about God not sparing sinners, not God not sparing the wicked. So understand that the actual usage of the word is very seldom used about anything but not sparing the wicked. Now, I know that this flies in the face of modern preaching. I mean, after all, God is a God of unending love, and He extends His love to all. 
And so this is what you hear in the pulpits today. God loves you. God loves you. God's a God of love. Isn't it wonderful to serve a God of love? Well, of course it is. And you hear this over and over. And of course, the scriptures certainly teach this. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Verse 16 of that same chapter. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Ephesians 3, 9, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I mean, that's pretty much what's preached today. Unfortunately, that is almost all that is preached. And so people have the false notion that God so loves us that he's just going to overlook our sin. That he's going to overlook our godlessness, our rebellion. That God is going to somehow spare us. Well, just as God's love is unending, friends, the Bible also teaches, the same Bible teaches, that God is a God of unbending justice. Just as he is a God of unending love, he is a God of unbending justice. And he imposes his justice on all, including me. You can go all the way back in the Old Testament to Nahum, for instance, as an example. Nahum 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. Oh, that now people preach that today. Woo! God's slow to anger. He's great in power. He loves you, and he's just going to work all kinds of miracles for you. But they don't read the rest of the verse. And will not at all acquit the wicked. In fact, I believe in most churches today, you wouldn't even hear the word wicked. Very seldom, I'll bet you, in most Baptist pulpits, does the preacher use the word wicked or the word repent. I'm aware of a church over in western Arkansas right now that has so dumbed down the people that attend there that I am fearful, my wife as well, that many of those people who are there are not even saved and don't even know it. And for the ones who are truly saved... They have listened to such watered-down preaching and teaching for so long, they have dropped their guard and compromised their own lives, just like Lot did in Sodom. And it just it, 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 it grieves me to think about the effect. I mean, the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That is the job of the preacher. My wife says I'm really good at the second half of that. I'm good, good, good at afflicting the comfortable. Listen to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, everybody today, they'll preach that. But what about this last phrase? By no means clearing the guilty. Oops. What about John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? Well, why don't they read on down to verses 18 and 19? He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Those outside of Christ aren't going to hell. As far as God is concerned in the eternal scheme of things, they're already in hell. Just like those who are in Christ 
from God's eternal perspective, are already in heaven. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus if we're truly born again. Doesn't mean that we deserve it. Doesn't mean that we're perfect. But God sees this from an eternal perspective. And it is important for us to understand that those who have rejected Christ are already in hell. Now that terrifies the mind, doesn't it? But listen to these verses because it gets even more strict. Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many. You could use the word most and be biblically correct. Who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult. You know what that word literally means? Confined. Which leads to life and there are few. Notice the word few. Few. What does few mean? Few. It means few. I don't know what percentage that is. But I know this. If you read the parable of the sower, the sower went out to sow seed and and Jesus lists four different types of ground. Only one of them produced maturity and fruit. Which would lead me to believe that he's saying that only 25% of those who heard the gospel are saved. Now I'm not going to say that dogmatically is what Jesus meant. But friend, I'm telling you, if we knew the number of people who are not saved, but either act like they are, or think they are, or hope they are, but aren't, I think it would just devastate us. I dare say that many of us have close, close family members and or friends that are just as lost as they can possibly be, and they stand condemned before God and think they're going to heaven. I've preached more funerals than I'd like to say. And I'm telling you, every family that you talk to, whether you knew the person that is deceased or you didn't, will always tell you that person loved God and is on their way to heaven. Well, they never went to church, but boy, they love God. That's like saying, boy, he's the best mechanic. Now, he never worked on a car, but he was a great mechanic. He was the best cattle rancher you've ever seen. Now, he never owned any cattle, but he was a great cattle rancher. Jesus said there is a narrow way and Few, few find it. Then you go to Matthew 7, further down the page, verses 21 through 23. We read this the last time. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, that's the judgment, Lord, Lord. Why? We prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders in your name. Jesus never says, no, you did not. He simply says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, if you look at the things that they claim to have done, if we saw a person doing that stuff, you know what we would conclude? They're the most saved person I've ever seen. Well, my gosh, they're prophesying in his name. They're casting out demons. Well, they're working miracles. That's got to be a man or a woman of God. Jesus says, not only were they not, but he never knew them. Depart from me. Listen to Matthew 13, 49 through 50. So it will be at the end of the age, Jesus says, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Where how many pulpits today will talk about the furnace of fire? You think very many Baptist preachers are going to talk about that? What about that church in western Arkansas? You think they're going to talk about the wailing and gnashing of teeth? Although I did have someone come up to me and say, well, the reason they won't preach that in Arkansas is they don't have any teeth. So they they can't really. 
For them, it'd be the wailing and gnashing of gums, right? I mean, the point is, and by the way, I'm from Arkansas, so. The point is, the Lord is trying to warn us. So what about this God will not spare them? Dan, is that just kind of overreaction? Are you just trying to scare people? No. The last thing in the world I want to do is cause you to doubt your salvation. But I'm telling you, friend, you could well, and I don't know, I'm not speaking of anybody here in particular at all, but you could be one of those ones who is lost as you can possibly be, and you're ignoring all the signs around you, all of the fruit in your life points the other direction. I don't care how long you've gone to church. I don't care how much of the Bible you've memorized. I don't care whether you understand eschatology from front to back, from back to front. I don't care if you can name every toe on the ten-toe uh, image of Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't matter to me. You could still be lost and know all of that. So what about God not sparing? Well, let's begin with this. The Bible says that God did not spare the angels that sinned. We know the story that God created a finite number of angels. One third of them followed the rebellion led by Lucifer and became demons. And God did not spare them. In 2 Peter, a number of these verses are going to come out of 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell... The Greek word is the word Tartarus, a prison house for demons, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now think about that. I mean, when we think of angels, we tend to think of glorious beings who have our best in mind, who may work behind the scenes to protect us, to fight spiritual battles on our behalf. When you encounter these angels in Scripture, they're advancing God's kingdom. They're delivering important messages. They're doing all these things, and they're glorious beyond imagination. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, when you hear God describing what Lucifer was like before he became the devil, you almost hear God wail as he says, You were perfect. You were beautiful. You were talented. You were gifted. But you have perverted yourself. And all of these glorious angels in a perfect environment, one-third of all of the angels followed Lucifer. You would think that if God's going to spare anybody, he'd have said, Look, I, I made these angels. They're too beautiful to judge. But Peter says he did not spare them. He did not spare them. So God did not spare these sinning angels. Number two, God did not spare the sinners of Noah's day. Peter goes on to say in verse 5 of chapter 2, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. I want you to think about that. No one knows how many people were on the planet, but it's been estimated that with the longevity of life and the atmospheric and, and, and con other conditions on planet Earth, climate and atmosphere and all that, it's possible that there could have been over 4 billion people on the planet when the flood of Noah came. See, we tend to think it's a few hundred thousand or so or maybe a few million. No, it's millions upon millions. Now, I don't know how many were on the Earth, but it was mathematically possible for there to be million upon millions of people. And yet they had turned so wicked that only eight 
And for 120 years, Noah built this ark. And the, the, the entire time, Peter says, he was preaching about the judgment. And they laughed. I guarantee you, they weren't laughing when those raindrops started hitting their foreheads. And they ran over to that ark that they'd been making fun of. And they started banging on the door. It's too late. Because the Bible specifically says that God, not Noah, shut the door and basically locked Noah in. Noah couldn't have opened that door if he'd have wanted to. And those on the outside desperately trying to get in could not force it open. It brings to mind where Jesus said, I am the one who opens a door and no man closes it. And I'm, a, I'm the one who closes the door and no man opens it. Open and nobody can close. Closes, nobody can open. God did not spare the sinners of Noah's day. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though Abraham had interceded and said, God, please, please, if there's 50 righteous, well, Lord, maybe there's not that. 40 righteous, well, maybe there's not that many. Now, by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah was an area. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people living there. It's not a little village. Well, Lord, maybe there are 30. Finally, it gets down to 10. He says, God, if there's just 10. And God said, I'll tell you what. If there's 10 righteous in Sodom, I'll spare the place. Now, Abraham had probably done some real quick mental math. And he knew that Lot and his wife and their children and their spouses. Why? That easily could amount to 10. There were only four. But not even those four were true. Because Lot's wife stopped before she was out of there because her heart was still in Sodom. She's judged. And then Lot gets out of there. And even though Peter says he was a believer, but he had corrupted his witness, his two daughters get him drunk and commit incest with their father. So really, there was one righteous. And he had compromised himself. God did not spare them, Peter says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards should, would live ungodly. God also did not spare any of the wicked. He says, I will not spare the wicked in any age. Look at these verses. This one's about the Egyptians when Moses and Aaron went there. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. There was no leniency. Deuteronomy 29.20. These are the Israelites who decided to serve other gods. They had idols. Listen to what God says. The Lord would not spare him, meaning if any man served another idol or any idol other than the true God... For then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. 1 Samuel 15, 3, when Saul is to go fight the Amalekites, what does Samuel say? Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and do not spare them. So God did not spare the angels that sinned. God did not spare the sinners in Noah's day. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. God will not spare any wicked. God didn't even spare his own chosen people. When Israel turned their backs on God, look at what God says in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. 
Therefore, says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. He shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. Read Jeremiah. really fits our day. And I will dash them, meaning the Israelites, one against another, God says. Even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy. See, this is the truth that's not being preached today. And this is why we have such a self-indulgent, arrogant, evangelical church in America. Because it's just God's love. God's love. God's unending love. We don't talk about God's unbending justice. You can go to the book of Ezekiel, and I'm not going to read all these passages of Scripture, but I took little phrases out of all of those chapters. God says, My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. I will repay you according to your ways. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. See, this is the healthy fear of God and His judgment that American Christians need a heap and help and dose of, like the Clampets used to say. It is time for us to recognize. Paul even says, you know, Paul said in Romans 11, if I had to, I'd go to hell for Israel. Do you know anybody you'd go to hell for? Paul said, I'd go to hell if Israel would be saved. But he says... For God did not spare the natural branches. That's referring to Israel. He said, God did not spare them. And unless we non-Jews would get arrogant, he said, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. God will not spare. And you say, well, my gosh. God is harsh. No, actually, God loves us, and He cares so much about what is right, He will not turn His head and call that which is bad, good. He will not call that which is down, up. He will not call that which is left, right. But there's one more truth that you need to hear. God did not even spare His own Son. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered him up for us all. You see, God is such a God of holiness and of justice that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the Bible says that God took your sin, my sin, the sin of everyone who will ever be born, and put it on him. Have you ever felt guilty? Have you ever done something that you knew was dead wrong and you felt God convicting you, the Holy Spirit telling you, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have said that, and you felt this this conviction, this guilt? Can you imagine how heavy the guilt will be on those who stand before Jesus someday and He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Can you imagine the weight of knowing that you're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire? Well, just imagine the weight of all the sins of every person who would ever live had all been placed on Christ. All. 
Every demon, all one-third of those angels that fell, every one of them, I'm convinced, were there. Can you imagine Lucifer standing in front of Jesus? See, Jesus could see what the others around the cross couldn't see. Can you imagine as Lucifer said, And you, you thought you were the Lord. Well, look what I've done to you. Well, Jesus said, look. You remember what he said to Peter? No man's going to take my life from me. They're not killing me. I'm freely giving my life. Lucifer didn't even understand. Jesus was willingly giving himself up. But now that he had become sin, God would not even spare his own son. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, the weight of all the world's sin was on him. On him. And God would not spare. And I want you to think about this. If there was ever going to be a time when God was going to be lenient on sin, don't you think it would have been when all of the sins of the whole world were laid on Jesus? Don't you think if there's ever going to be a time where God would say, you know what, I'm going to let that one slide. Don't you think it would have been then? I mean, this is God the Son hanging there on the cross. A member of the Godhead. If there was ever going to be a time when God would say, you know, I'm just going to turn my head on this one and let it pass. It would have been then. But he did not spare himself. And Jesus hung there in agony and blood. And God would not spare him. And we think that somehow he's going to spare us. He wouldn't even spare his own son. So God will not spare those who reject his son. Listen to this passage of scripture. You've heard it before. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 28 through 31. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. On the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose... Will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Notice in that passage, you have individuals insulting all three members of the Godhead. They didn't insult Jesus. They insulted the Spirit of God and God the Father. The whole Trinity, the whole triune Godhead of God has been insulted. And he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Friends, either we need Christ, right here in this room, those watching online, those listening later, who do not know Christ, or if we do know him, we have people, family, friends, who are in this position, God would not spare His Son. You think He's going to spare them? Or He's going to spare you? Or He's going to spare me? You say, well, Dan, you're preaching a hopeless gospel here. Oh, no. No, this is the last point and we're done. Oh, it's not hopeless. Not at all. 
God will spare everyone who seeks redemption in Christ. Everyone. Listen to these verses. Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 22. You know, Nehemiah was the one that was sent by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah knew that the Israelites were sinning and profaning the Sabbath. And and what that was really doing, it wasn't so much the Sabbath. What they were doing is spitting in God's face. And so even though Nehemiah knew that the Israelites were doing that, I want you to listen to what Nehemiah prayed for himself. He said, remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. He said, I realize what these people are doing around me. But God, remember me. It's almost like the thief on the cross. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, guys, you can't have a more simple gospel than that. Now, that man didn't pray, oh, Lord, I understand lordship from start to finish. I understand adoption. I understand propitiation. I understand all of this. And because I've worked through all of this theology, I'd like for you to know that I believe you've manifested yourself as the Son of God, and I want to list for you all the proofs that have brought me to this. No! He just cried out, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Was that enough? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So no, it's not a hard gospel in that no one can be saved. But it is a hard gospel in that most of us don't want to accept culpability. We don't want to accept the fact that we are not holy, that we are not just, that we are not righteous. And we think in our own minds that we've tried pretty hard. Not hard enough. Joel chapter 2 verse 17. God said, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Listen to Malachi. God says, speaking of Israel, even though Israel had strayed, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Now, I want you to think about this. This is future tense. I believe at the end of the great tribulation, the nation of Israel is going to come to the realization, you know what, Jesus really was our Messiah. We have followed every false Christ there's been. We even followed the Antichrist. We followed the beast. Jesus really is our Lord. And not every individual Jew, but Israel as a collective people group will come to their Messiah. Now I want you to listen to what God says. Because I want you to catch the irony. Look at that last sentence. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son. Now I want you to catch the, the, the contrast. But God didn't spare his son. That's how much he loves you. That is how much he loves your family members. That is how much he loves that wicked person down the street. That God did not spare his own son, even though he says, I will spare them as a man spares his own son. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. I'm not much on life verses because I believe my life verse verse begins at Genesis 1-1 and wraps up in Revelation chapter 22. But here is a verse that you need to commit to memory and personalize this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. For he, that means God the Father, made him, that means Jesus, who knew no sin 
to be sin for me. Put your name there. That we might become or I might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus who never sinned to become sin for me. So that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Friend, you can't hear better news than that. God will not spare them. But if in Christ you have committed yourself to Him, I mean the real deal, not some church deal, not some, well, you know, I went forward at a youth camp, I was baptized. When I, who cares about all of that? You can be baptized till you grow web feet. That's not going to make you a believer. You can sleep in the garage, but you don't become a Buick. I'm telling you right now, church isn't going to do it for you. And you say, well, I know that. Well, then why is the world so lost? If we all know that, God will not spare them. He will not spare them. Now I want to close with this illustration right out of the ministry of Jesus. You probably will remember that one of the parables that Jesus told, it's in Matthew 21, he told the parable of a man that owned a vineyard. And he put that vineyard uh, to work with some hired hands. Well, when it came time to harvest the fruit, he sent some other workers to help with the harvest, but the guys who had been working in the orchard or the vineyard killed them, got rid of one of them. Uh, I mean, killed one of them, got rid of the others. He sends others. He keeps saying. So finally, he sends his son. The man who owns the orchard sends his son. Well, these guys have been working in this orchard or this vineyard. Says, well, look, there's the guy that's going to inherit all this. Who's he? He hasn't done anything to earn this. We've been working this thing. And they kill the owner's son. Now, I want you to listen to what Jesus said then. And they said to him, first of all, Jesus said, When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? So Jesus just asked the crowd, what do you think ought to be done to those guys? Now, this is what they said to him. They said to him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will lease his vineyard to other farmers who shall render him the fruits in their seasons. So they understood it and they said, well, they ought to be killed. Hanging's too good for them. And Jesus said, well, that's you. He goes on to say, that's you. Because God has sent you all these prophets, and you've either rejected them or killed them, and now he has sent his son. You're going to kill him. And they said, hanging is too good for him. God will not spare. So of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. You say, well, I would never, ever do that. Really? Well, if you reject this message today, that's what you're doing. You say, well, no, I've been to church here for years. I've been a member of this church for a long time. Dan, I was a member before you came. That's great. But if you substitute church membership 
for what the Lord Jesus did for you on the cross, friend, you have trampled on the blood of Jesus and God will not spare. He wouldn't even spare his own son. 